Welcome back, everyone, to this week's episode of Let's Talk Murder. I'm your host, Amber. And this week's episode is the second episode of the Mass Murder Month. If you haven't listened to our first episode, which is the Easter Sunday Massacre, don't forget to go back and listen to it. This week, we'll be discussing the second largest mass murder in the country. This is the Orlando nightclub shooting. Now, there were 49 victims killed during this mass murder, along with 53 more wounded. And as always, we would like to take time to tell you about the victims who have passed. But there are 49 of them, so please bear with me on the names. I just want to make sure that I take the time to say who they were, even though I don't have time to let you know like anything about their past. Um, here they are from youngest to oldest. First, we have 18-year-old Akira M. Murray, the 19-year-old Jason B. Josephat, 20-year-old Louis O. Ocasio-Cabo, 21-year-old Corey J. Connell, 21-year-old Alejandro Barros Martinez, 22-year-old Peter O. Gonzalez Cruz, 22-year-old Juan R. Guerrero, 22-year-old Luis S. Vioma, 23-year-old Stanley Almodovar III, 24-year-old Christopher J. Sandvelis, 24-year-old Jonathan A. Camui Vega, 24-year-old Yalberi Rodriguez Sullivan, 25-year-old Amanda Albert, 25-year-old Kevin E. Crosby, 25-year-old Juan Cherveres Martinez, 25-year-old Anthony L. Loriano Disla, 25-year-old Leroy V. Fernandez, 25-year-old Geraldo A. Cortez Jimenez, 25-year-old Enrique L. Rios Jr., 25-year-old Gilberto Ramon Silva Mendez, 26-year-old Oscar A. Arsindo Montero, 26-year-old Mercedes M. Flores, 27-year-old Jean C. Neves Rodriguez, 27-year-old Frank Hernandez, 28-year-old Angel L. Candelario Pedro, 29-year-old Daryl R. Burnt II, 30-year-old Miguel A. Honorito, 30-year-old Eddie J. Justice, 30-year-old Antonio D. Brown, 31-year-old Gerald A. Wright, 31-year-old Simon A. Carrillo Fernandez, 32-year-old Christopher A. Linonen, 32-year-old Joel Renan Paniagua, 32-year-old Dianca D. Drayton, 33-year-old Rodolfo Ayala, 33-year-old Martin B. Torres, 33-year-old Shane E. Tomlinson, 
34-year-old Edward Sotomayor Jr. 35-year-old Xavier Emmanuel Serrano Rosado. 35-year-old Jean C. Mendez Perez. 36-year-old Eric Ivan Ortez Rivera. 37-year-old Kimberly Morris. 37-year-old Juan R. Rivera Velasquez. 37-year-old Luis Daniel Wilson Leon. 39-year-old Luis D. Cunde. 40-year-old Javar Jorge Rios. 41-year-old Paul T. Henry. 49-year-old Brenda L. Martinez McCool. And 50-year-old Frankie J. De Jesus Velasquez. Now, this case has been difficult to research because we took the time to listen to all of the 911 calls. We looked at the posts from the victims that they had posted while they were in the club. To the, They posted onto their social media and the messages that they sent their family. And it's just very, truly horrific. We also want to take a moment to speak about who the shooter was and a little bit about his past. His name was Omar Martin, and he was born on November 16, 1986, in New York. Now, I tried to find his mother's name, and I had no luck finding it. His father's name was Sadetic Mir, and his parents were both Afghan, and he was raised Muslim. Now, he was the only son, and he had three sisters. But even though they were four siblings all together, he was very special to the family since he was the only boy. But not only does that hold a lot of pride being the only boy, but it also holds a lot of pressure from the family as well. And here's a little bit of history about his past. He actually trained as a prison guard for the Florida Department of Corrections from October 2006 to April of 2007. And while he was like a probationary employee, he had actually joked around about bringing a gun into the school. So he received an administrative termination because the warden recommended it since, you know, like he was making these jokes. And shortly after, he tried to pursue a career in law enforcement, but he failed to become a Florida State Trooper in 2011, and he also tried to gain admission into the police academy in 2015, but he failed getting in as that as well. According to the police academy classmates, he had actually threatened to shoot some of the classmates at a cookout that they had in 2007 after his hamburger touched pork. Now, this is a violation of the Islamic dietary laws, so I could see him getting upset about it, but not enough for him to threaten to shoot somebody. Like, it's not that deep of a problem. But other witnesses at that cookout said that he had been drinking quite a bit, so he was pretty drunk. And in 2007, he became a security guard for G4S Secure Solutions. And this is actually a company that he still worked with at the time of this mass shooting. But the company had said that they did two screenings on him 
The first one was whenever they first hired him in 2007. And then they did another one again in 2013. And they said that neither one of them raised red flags. Like he did not seem like he shouldn't be a security guard. So he held an active statewide firearm license and an active security officer license. And he also passed a psychological test. And up until the shooting, he actually had no criminal record. Now you'll hear me talk about later that like he was viewed as a threat many times or a person of interest, but he was never, like, there was no criminal record. So he didn't seem to be, like, a criminal of any sort. Now, the statewide firearms license that he got back in 2007, the psychologist who reportedly evaluated and cleared him for his license for the G4S records was questioned, you know, about them clearing him after like this is after the shooting they had asked and the person that signed saying that he was psychologically able to you know have this license they said that they denied ever meeting him they didn't even live in florida at the time and the lady said she actually stopped practicing in florida in 2006 so then they had to go back and ask G4S, like, you know, like, what's going on? And they said that there was a clinical error and that there was a different psychologist that cleared him. And then when investigators went to talk to this doctor, he said that he didn't even interview Omar, that he had actually evaluated the results from the test and the screening that he underwent before being hired. So G4S was actually fined for the testing program. And from the sound of it, he should have never had his license to be able to legally carry a gun. And I understand having a license and being able to get a hold of a gun is two different things. But I think that not having a license to buy the gun might have helped him have a harder time to get these guns. So in 2009, he actually married his first wife and they had met on social media and hung out a few times and he proposed. Now her family was not a big fan of him at all. They were not happy. They didn't want him to be with her and she actually ran away and got married she says that he was mentally unstable and mentally ill and disturbed deeply and traumatized. Now, a little bit after they got together and they got married, he actually became physically abusive to her. And so it took her a lot to get away. So whenever her family actually got her away, which is really hard to do whenever you're extremely scared that somebody's going to come back and kill you or, you know, like hurt you. Like if they threaten you like that, it's really hard to just leave. But her family gets her to leave and their divorce was actually final in 2011. And something interesting to me happened in May of 2013 and July 2014 because he had became a person of interest of the FBI. Now in the investigation in 2013, he had made a comment to a co-worker that he had family connections to Al-Qaeda and he also said that 
He actually had ties with the shooter of the 2009 Fort Hood shooting and both of the perpetrators of the Boston Marathon bombings. So this was not the first time. Like in 2016, whenever he did this mass shooting, this was not the first time that he had said something about Al-Qaeda or the first time that he would even been looked at by the FBI. According to the documents after both of these investigations, he had said to investigators that his comments were in response to a lot of harassment from his co-workers and also the St. Louis County Sheriff's Department. And he stated that his co-workers actually taunted him and joked about him being a Muslim extremist. So after he made these comments, G4S actually removed him from his post. And that's when the county sheriff reported him to the FBI. Now, they did not fire him. It states in documents that he was actually working for the company when the shooting happened. And so the documents also show him saying that he was a thousand percent American and he was against any anti-American and any anti-humanity terrorist organization. So I'm not sure if he made these comments to like help get away from being looked at or if he truly meant them. In the investigation in the 2014 case, he was actually linked to an American radical who committed suicide during a bombing in Syria. Now, Omar was interviewed for these two investigations a total of three times by two different investigators. They were eventually closed out after investigators said that they had not found anything that warranted further investigation into him. Now that you know a little bit about Omar Martin's past, let's go ahead and talk about the case of the Orlando nightclub shootings. In the hours before the shooting, Omar used several different Facebook accounts to write posts vowing his allegiance for American airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. And also, he researched content related to terrorism. Now, these posts were since deleted, but after the shooting, they were recovered by the police department. And after he had made these posts, he had been talking to his father and he seemed to be really upset and angry over this gay couple that had kissed in front of his family in front of the Bayside Marketplace, which was actually in Miami, Florida. And the couple had kissed in front of them like months prior to the shooting. Um, his father said that that day he was talking about it and just seemed to get really angry. And investigators believe that that could have been the motivation factor in the selection of the nightclub but after researching a lot they can't confirm that that is what had caused him to pick the pulse nightclub now in 2016 at the time of the shooting he actually lived with his wife son father and another relative in an apartment in fort pierce which happens to be 117 miles from pulse nightclub which happened to be in orlando florida you know, I'm not sure what made him drive that far away. I mean, 117 miles, that's 
pretty far. You definitely would think that he would have had a plan going into it as far as like where he was going to go because of him driving so far. I don't see him driving from town to town until he figures it out. Like I think he had targeted that Pacific nightclub. Now talking about the nightclub, it was a gay nightclub in Orlando. And let me explain a little bit about the layout. So it was a fairly, from what I've seen, very large nightclub. And when you first walk into the main entrance, you go into the hip hop room. And then if you go further into, like through the hip hop room, you go to the main room where they have dance floors and like a DJ and everything. And there's also a patio right outside of the main dance floor area. And they had a little fence around the patio area so they could have like tables and stuff out there for seating. Now, Orlando had been celebrating gay days all week, that week. And they had so much going on in the city for everyone to join. And Pulse was right along with the celebration. And the people there were gathering to have just a fantastic night with their friends, like, Pulse was said to be this upbeat, fun-loving place where you can go and just be yourself. So it is definitely somewhere that a lot of people wanted to go and be. And on June 11th, 2016, they actually hosted a Latino night. And so the majority of the crowd was Latino. And people said that that night, like after gay days, it was just such a huge, huge event. And it was a big deal to them. And the DJ that night happened to be Simon Roman. And he had talked about later how hyped the crowd was that night. And it was just like a huge family had gathered for the party. Like you felt more like family than strangers. Like everybody gets along. Everybody's laughing and joking. And there were a lot of videos from like Snapchat and Facebook Everything that people were posting like prior to Omar going in of just how hyped the crowd was and it just everybody seemed to be having a great night. So around 2 a.m. it was the last call for drinks and that was actually at the same time that Omar Martin arrived to the nightclub and he actually had rented a van that he parked in the parking lot in the it was a car shop next to the nightclub and that's where he parked. He didn't actually like park inside the nightclub parking lot. So he gets out of the van and he walks towards the building armed with a Sig Sawyer MCX semi-automatic rifle and a 9mm Glock 17 semi-automatic pistol. So he really just grabs them and walks in, like not trying to hide it at all. And as he's walking into the nightclub, he actually passes Officer Adam Guler, who was an ununiformed off-duty officer from the Orlando Police Department. He was working there that night for extra security because, you know, like the gay dates, like it had such a bigger amount of people there. So he worked there as um, just an extra security guard that night. And so as Omar passes the officer, he enters through the building's south entrance. And as soon as he walks in the door, he starts shooting right away. And Adam had taken cover and called for assistance, which this blows my mind because you will never convince me that he should not have shot at him at that time. I mean, he is at the front door. He sees him coming. Like, I understand that the gun might not be as powerful as the ones that Omar had, but he could have tried to do something before he entered the building. 
That's my opinion. After the incident, he had actually told police department that he immediately recognized that the handgun he had on him was severely at a disadvantage against Omar's rifle, which may be true. But like I said, he should have tried to like injure him, stop him, at least make a big scene enough that people in the back of it can get out through other doors, like give people time to do something. But he hides and calls for assistance. I just don't agree with him hiding. He was supposed to be there to protect people. And I feel hiding wasn't the answer. But again, I wasn't there. So I don't really know like what was going through his mind and like what was happening in the moment. Anyway, after Omar goes in, he instantly shoots three people at the very beginning. And he walks into the dance room and just starts shooting. And he had actually went onto the patio, which is outside of the building. And this is important to remember because I'm confused at a part of him going back in. So he's on the patio and he's shooting. And Adam actually shoots at him at that point. In response to that, Omar actually goes back into the building and witnesses said that there were times that Omar actually were shooting at bodies that was just lying on the ground, like not caring if they were dead or alive. Like he wasn't taking the time to extinguish which one they were. But here's the reason that I don't understand. So four minutes after Omar walks in the nightclub, additional officers arrive. Once the other officers arrived, Adam actually shouted at them, the gunman's on the patio, and then resumed firing towards Omar. So at this point, he is still outside, like on the outer part, like still in the fenced-in area, but like the outer part of this nightclub. Yet, so at this point, three officers are shooting at him, and he's on the patio. How does he turn around and go back further into the nightclub? I don't understand because they would be shooting at the door of the patio to like stop him. But they're saying that he retreats back into the nightclub. I don't know if maybe I am looking at it wrong. Maybe the officers weren't where I am mentally picturing them. But I don't get how, like, in the way that I have it pictured, if he is on the patio shooting and he is getting shot at by three officers, he has to cross them, right? Like, that's how he would have to, he would have to cross at some point. Or they have to back off. Either way, he goes back into the nightclub and he goes into the restroom. He starts holding people hostage. Now, they had been approximately 200 rounds fired in less than five minutes. And witnesses said the only time that Omar had paused was to reload his gun. Which, again... I was not there, but I was thinking, you know, if he is reloading his gun and he's not paying attention, wouldn't that be a time to shoot at him? But at the same time, listening to what the um, victims inside that were being held hostage were saying, that they were just like so traumatized that that's not the way they were thinking. Like they were literally frozen, scared. And I can only imagine, like, I don't even know that I could imagine what was going through their minds. But once Amran Yusuf, who was actually just recently discharged from the Marine Corps, was there working as a bouncer, and he hears the gunshots, and once he hears them, he jumps over this locked door, which had dozens and dozens of people just hidden behind it. 
like fearing for their life. And once he opened the latch behind them, this allowed around 70 people to escape successfully and safely, which is absolutely amazing because of how many people were inside the nightclub. So just getting 70 out safely without any wounds or like shooting at them, like that is amazing. So many of those witnesses described the scene as being like full of panic and confusion. They said that it was caused by, you know, the loud music still going on because the shots started firing. Nobody's going to care to turn the music off. So the you got the loud music going, you got the gunshots going and darkness, like it caused a lot of panic. And one of the survivors had actually said she walked into one of the restrooms. I'm not really sure. Um, I didn't get the exact restroom she went into, but she goes in the restroom and the sink is like a standalone sink. So it's like a, it's built into the wall a little bit, but not like concreted there. So she actually pulls on it and she yanks it up and she uses it to put in place of her, like in front of her chest as a shield so that if he walks into the restroom there, that she had a better chance of surviving because if he shoots at her, hopefully he gets, you know, the sink and it doesn't go through. And another person shielded herself inside a restroom by covering herself with bodies of the deceased. So she knew that they were already gone and that she couldn't help them, but she feared for her life. So she covered herself up and used them as a shield. And one of the bartenders had actually said that they took cover underneath the glass bar. And there was a lady that was in the main dance room that was shot nine times. But thankfully, after a long road of recovery, she was a survivor. And being shot nine times had to be horrific. And it's just amazing that she was able to get out and get help and just survive. So around 2.09, which was a, roughly about nine minutes after the gunfire began, someone from the nightclub I posted on Facebook saying, everyone get out of Pulse, keep running. And according to one of the hostages, like inside the restroom that Omar actually went into, says that he opened fire on the people hiding in there and wounded several of them. They said that their phones were going off because, you know, like people outside of the club is getting notifications like, hey, the there's a shooting there and I know my son's there, or I know my daughter's there, or my cousin. And so they're trying to call them to make sure that they're okay. And the witnesses said that if he heard a phone ring, he would just turn in that direction and start shooting. So, of course, the people who were in there being held hostage were trying to like turn their phones off so he didn't hear anything. And they were trying to hide in the stalls. And he actually ends up at one point going into a stall with a few different hostages. So shortly after entering the women's restroom, Omar's rifle jams. And again, the people in the restroom said that they were just shocked in fear. They didn't know what to do. Like they panicked. And this is why they didn't try to like attack him as one. I don't blame them. At this point, they're telling their family that, you know, like they're probably going to die tonight. So they're just so scared that they literally cannot move. Once the rifle jammed, Omar discarded it and got out his Glock 17 pistol. And there were a few survivors inside the restaurant that night that said that Omar had actually asked them, like, 
hey, are there any black people in this restroom? And they ended up saying yes, but they were terrified. Like, why he was saying something to them. Like, actually wanted to know if they were there. And instead of attacking them or anything, he actually said that he didn't have anything personal against them. And he said that he understood what they went through during slavery and told them that this wasn't a personal attack on them. And he just couldn't stop his attack until Americans stopped bombing his country. Which some of the African Americans that were in there were actually shot at. So at the time he's shooting, he doesn't care. He, he really doesn't. But once he gets in the restroom and he calms himself down a little bit, he starts telling them, you know, like, they're here for Americans. Like, that's what he's there to shoot at and take out his anger of what Americans doing overseas that he just, he can't stop. He actually had told some of them that he had explosives on him as well as snipers stationed around the club. Now, even though he didn't have any snipers around the club and he didn't have anyone helping him, at that moment, you don't know that. So that's one reason that I feel that he said this in order for them to try to not run. Because if you think you're going to go out the door, somebody's going to snipe you, that can be very fearful. So once they heard that he had explosives on him or possible explosives, some of the people that were inside the saw were actually trying to text 911 to warn them of the possible explosives. And Omar actually called 911 around 2.22 a.m. And during this call, he talks about the Boston Marathon bombers and called them his homeboys. And he also referred to an American citizen who had died in a suicide bombing in Syria in 2014. Now, he said that he got the inspiration for the shooting from the Americans targeting Syria government troops. And he swore his allegiance at that moment to ISIS. And the FBI said that Omar and the suicide bombing Babu Salah, again, I don't know that I'm saying that right, but he's the guy that was a suicide bomber in Syria. And they said that him and Omar actually attended the same training classes and they casually knew each other. And Omar had made more than two more 911 calls. And in the first 45 minutes uh, after the shooting started, officers from Orlando Police Department and the Orange County Sheriff's Office were dispatched to the scene. And among the first responders to arrive were firefighter crew from Fire Station 5 and two supporting firemen from and paramedics from Fire Station 7. Now, 80 fire and emergency medical services personnel from the Orlando Fire Department were deployed during this entire incident. And after the initial rounds of gunfire, you know, in between Omar and Adam and the other officers that had arrived, they shot out a large glass window and followed the sound of the shooting into the restroom area. Now, when Omar stuck his head out of the restroom, officers actually tried to shoot at him. And the gunfire had stopped, so they were, like, Omar had stopped shooting. So they were ordered to hold position instead of storming into the restroom. And according to one of the officers, after about 15 to 20 minutes, the SWAT team had arrived and had the officers withdraw because they weren't in 
the correct tactical gear. And so the SWAT team took over their position. And when they were asked why the officers didn't proceed in the bathroom to engage Omar, the police officer, John Mina, had said that it was because Omar went from being an active shooter to a barricaded gunman. And he had hostages at that time. So they needed to do what was best for those hostages to try to get as many of them out alive as possible. He also noted that had Omar continued to shoot them, then they would have went in. And I don't really, I don't know why they would go in if he continued to shoot but not shoot, but I could see them trying to get as many people out safely as possible. The last time that Omar had been firing shots at that point was in between 2.10 a.m. and 2.18 a.m. And rescuers of the people that had been trapped inside the nightclub continued throughout the night. Like they were trying to figure out different spots in the nightclub that he wasn't. They got this help from the people inside the nightclub. Like they, they were telling them like where he was located. So they were able to go in and get people out that were not being held hostage at the moment. And because there were so many people lying on the floor, one of the rescue officers actually said, if you're alive, raise your hand. And this was around 2.30 a.m. And Omar's wife had sent him a text message asking him, like, where are you? And he texts back asking her as she had seen the news. And she responded with, no. And so he said, I love you, babe. She texts him back at one point saying that she loved him too. But she had called him several times, you know, before she started texting, and he didn't answer her. He said that she didn't find out what was happening until around 4 a.m. when police officers told her to come out of her house with their hands up because they had suspected that, you know, like she had some kind of acknowledgement or she could have possibly been helping in the situation. But this brings questions to me because if you text or call your husband at 2.30 in the morning and he's not answering, and then when he finally does, he says something about the news. And you say you have not seen the news. Why don't you find out what's on the news? Like, that's what I would do. Like, I don't understand why she didn't try to figure out what he was talking about as far as the news. Like, she didn't question it. She didn't ask him about it. She didn't look on to figure out what was going on in the news. Like, nothing. And I don't know why. Unless she actually knew what was going on. Which, her texting and calling him appeared to be like she didn't have anything to do with it. But again, if he's going to tell you something's on the news and he's not answering his phone, you should probably turn on the news. So around 2.35 a.m., police had managed to get most of the injured out of the nightclub. And those who remained were the ones that were in the restroom with him held a hostage. But there was also a dressing room that had about a dozen or so people that were hiding inside of it. They were just absolutely scared to come out. And so they were hidden in there. At 2.45 a.m., for some reason, Omar decides that he's going to call News 13 of Orlando. And while he's on the phone with them, he says, I'm the shooter. It's me. I'm the shooter. Then he tells the news reporters that he is shooting on behalf of ISIS and begins, like, talking really fast in Arabic. And he had told the news station the same thing that he had told the 911 caller, that he had been shooting because of the U.S. bombing Iraq and Syria. And the police negotiator had been on the phone with Omar three times, somewhere in between 2.48 a.m. and 3.27 a.m. At some point 
in these calls back and forth, he tells the negotiator that he has bombs strapped to himself and that he has enough explosives in the vehicle he drove there that it could take out like city blocks. It wasn't until 3.58 a.m. that the Orlando Police Department actually went public with announcing the shooting and confirmed that multiple people had been injured. And during this time, the police department dispatched a tactical robot into the restroom and allowed communication in between the hostages via two-way audio. And around 4.21 a.m., eight of the hostages escaped after police had removed the air conditioning unit. And then again, eight minutes later, Omar told negotiators that he actually had vests strapped with explosives and he was going to put them on four different people and put them in different corners of the building. And then in 15 minutes, he's going to detonate the bomb to blow up the building. So at that point, the officers decide, you know, we're we're done negotiating. We're done like trying to get you to come out. So there had been no shots reported or heard between the time that Omar had stopped um, the gunfire at 2.18 in the morning until about 5.02 a.m. And this is when the police officer began like breaching the, the building's wall. And when they were trying to enter the women's restroom where the hostages were being held, a man was killed. He actually sacrificed his life to save a woman behind him. And around 5.05 a.m., the police had actually used a bomb squad to set off a controlled explosive. And that explosive went off. And at 5.07, just two minutes later, since the blow wasn't big enough to put a hole in the bathroom wall, they actually used a bear cap armored vehicle to ram into the bathroom wall and this is when two flashbangs were distributed in the restroom to kind of distract Omar and they were able to shoot him and the breach drew Omar out in the hallway at 514 he engaged the officers and he was shot eight times and killed as a result of the shootout this involved at least 11 officers who fired 150 bullets and he was reported down at 5:17 a.m. However, it wasn't until 5:53 a.m. that the police department had actually posted something on social media saying an update for the pulse shooting, the shooter inside the club is dead. At that time, 30 hostages were freed during this operation. And his survivors were then searched for guns and explosives because the police department at that time didn't know if Omar had left something in there that could potentially cause more casualties. Now, when the gunshot first started going on, some of the survivors said that the smoke from the gun made it smell like a fire and like they could actually taste the gunpowder and that. At the beginning, everybody was trying to, like, climb over each other and just, like, get out. And they were people, like I said before, inside the club, like, texting their loved ones. And reading those messages was really hard because, like, they were people telling their parents, like, I'm going to die tonight. Or their, you know, like, their family members, like, I love you. This is it. And... There was actually 38 people from the club that night that were pronounced dead on this scene. And 11 of them were pronounced dead at the hospital. Now, Omar was also pronounced dead at the scene. And 
Out of the 38 victims that had died on the scene, 20 of them had died in, in the stage area, the main room and the dance floor, and nine others had died in the northern bathroom and four in the southern bathroom, three on stage, one in the front lobby, and one out on the patio. At least five of the dead were not killed during the initial gunfire, but during the hostage situation in the restroom. And like I mentioned before, over 90% of them had expanded background due to the club hosting the Latino night. There were, half of those people were also Puerto Rican descendants and four Dominicans and three Mexican citizens were among those deceased. Also deceased was a U.S. Army Reserve captain. Autopsies were done on all 49 deceased, and the results were released in the early August. And according to the reports, many of them were shot multiple times in the front or side, and they were from short distances. So they were actually facing him at the moment that he shot them. And more than a third of them were shot in the head and had multiple wounds showing that they were within three feet away from him when he shot them. 44 people were taken to the Orlando Regional Medical Center, which was the primary regional trauma center. and. Twelve others were taken to Florida Hospital, Orlando. Nine of the 11 that had died in the hospital had died in Orlando Regional Medical Center. And in that hospital, there were 27 that remained hospitalized and six in critical condition. And the hospital itself had actually formed 76 surgeries. One of the doctors that were working in the ER that night had said that they were getting people in like one patient per minute. Like as soon as they were able to get a bed for them, another one was coming. It was so tragic to see like they couldn't get enough beds for people quick enough. And there were so many people that had lost so much blood and they just, they were not prepared for such a big tragic event. But they did the best that they could. The last of the injured that was discharged from the hospital was actually discharged on September 6th. And this was roughly about three months after the shooting had happened. So Omar's body was buried in the Muslim cemetery in Southern Florida. And despite the numerous anonymous and named reports of the LGBTQ connections, the FBI were unable to verify any claims that he was homophobic or that he was homosexual, or that he had been to gay bars, and they weren't even sure if he knew that Pulse was a gay nightclub, and since he was deceased, they really couldn't, like, question it, but they did look through, like, his phone and everything that, and they said that there was no photographs or text messages or any location suggesting that he had been to like a gay nightclub before or anything that would suggest that he was gay. And his father had also said that he didn't think that he was homosexual. However, his ex-wife had said that his father had mentioned like him being gay, like why she's around. So 
And some of his friends and family and also his wife at the time believed that he might have been gay. But the FBI had asked them not to like post that. And I'm not really sure why. But later on in documentations, it says that there were people that were close to him that really thought he was gay. And since it was like a sin to his religion and his father would be like really frantic about it. Like he did not want to like let anybody know. And when they got a hold of his computer, the defense revealed that he had Googled like downtown Orlando nightclubs and he had looked up different ones like Disney Springs and Eve Orlando nightclub. And he also had looked up Pulse. And they said during his wife's trial in 2018 that they think he chose Pulse because of the lack of security and not because it was a gay nightclub. But still, that's something like we don't really know because he didn't leave like any messages as to why he was doing it in that one or the reason he picked it or anything. So this is just assumptions from people around. After the shooting, Facebook had actually activated its safe check feature, and it was actually the first time they had ever used it. But they used it so that people could check themselves in as safe. So if something happened and they weren't able to communicate with their family, that people knew that they were safe. And following the shooting, many businesses and venues re-examined their security procedures And also, police forces across the country announced that they plan to increase security around the LGBTQ landmarks and also have more like during Pride Month events so that something like this couldn't happen to them again. Because, again, they can't confirm that he didn't do this because they were gay. So there's a chance he did. So they want to make sure that that does not happen again. And a total of 603 911 calls were made by the victims, family members, and friends, and just people walking by, and also some rescue workers. And to be honest with you, I I tried to listen to as many as I could on this. The noises that you hear in the background, and the screaming, and just the terror is just awful. On September 14th, 2016, the city of Orlando actually announced that they were going to provide a new fence around the nightclub. And they also were paying for the plots of the deceased. And the hospitals had said that they were not going to bill any of the victims for any of the procedures and the care that they received while they were in the hospital. Now, one thing that was frustrating to read was that there's a law to where men who sleep with other men are not allowed to donate blood. And they had asked for this to be lifted during this time because there was such a big need for blood. But the FDA stated on June 14th that they had no plans to change it. So it didn't matter. Like, they weren't going to change it. And that really bothers me because... There were men there willing to give blood to help friends and family and strangers, and they were turned away and denied that right to help. And they were people that needed blood that couldn't get blood because there was nobody that they said were there to give blood, but yet there were people there to give blood. Now, this shooting is the second deadliest mass shooting from a single shooter in the U.S. history. And it's actually behind the Las Vegas shooting, and we are actually going to be covering that one next week. It is, however, the deadliest incident and shooting against the LBGTQ community. And 
that's all we have for you today, guys. Don't forget to hit the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on our future episodes. Also, if you'd like to leave a comment on this and let us know how we're doing and things that you like, don't like, just give us some feedback. Um, have a great week and we'll see you in the next episode.